Hello and welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton and this is the fifth in a series looking at the impact of the COVID-19 crisis, asking how we can build back better. This one is all about the world's cities. It's taken from a public webinar that WRI held that looked at everything from the physical form of cities to their finances and their communities, especially the poor. The panellists you'll hear from are Sam A. Waba, Sheila Patel, Henko Vink and Annie Dasgupta. But first, Maimuna Maud Sharif of UN Habitat. Over 1,500 cities in 210 countries affected by COVID-19. Over 95% of the cases in urban areas. 1 billion people live in informal settlement and slum in overcrowded and inadequate housing. 2.4 billion people lack adequate access to safe water and sanitation. This is now, so what is next? So this is the, the, sorry, this is the detail of the area that we would like to do, the response area, innovative community-driven solution, urban data mapping and knowledge, mitigating economics impact and initiate recovery. I have already set up one task force to look at the priorities in the post-COVID world. First, as we have to rethink the state, reorganizing local governance mechanism. We cannot work as normal. We cannot make the decision as normal. So we have to rethink the state of the how to reorganize the local government. How is it linked within the private sector? How is it linked between the uh, national government? And second is how we can address the increase of poverty and the uh, exacerbation of inequalities uh, in cities. And the third is on the rethinking of urban morphology and typologies creating new evidence on density and compactness. Are we planning the future cities or the existing cities after COVID-19 is still the same? And the last, how we can reduce the risk of failure of the current urban economy business model. That was Maimona Maud Sharif. Next, Sameh Waba of the World Bank. At the World Bank, we are mobilizing 160 billion over the coming 15 months. So the four domains of the intervention, the first is obviously at the emergency level, is the public health emergency. And this is combining interventions to basically increase countries' ability to address the public health emergency through emergency procurement, etc. But also availing liquidity to the countries so that they can cope with these additional expenditures. Now, the second pillar of the intervention is obviously the focus on the poor and the vulnerable. The third is the focus on the private sector. And then the fourth pillar is the overall economic uh, stimulus. As far as cities are concerned, I mean, we really need targeted investments, both to cities and to local governments, because they are in the front line of addressing this emergency, together with public health authorities and disaster risk management agencies. But also within cities, we need to focus on those who need help the most. The poor and the vulnerable have been very seriously affected in cities, and our estimates is that there will be possibly upward of 100 million so-called new poor on account of losses of jobs, livelihoods, and income will be vulnerable to falling back into poverty. So even our mechanisms, our traditional mechanisms of cash transfers, etc., which had been tailored, let's say, in the past to addressing issues of poverty in rural areas, are less well adapted. And then, as we're talking about reaching the poor and the vulnerable, since many countries and cities do not have registries that are up to date of where those poor and the vulnerable are, then more often than not, you'll need a place-based type approach that would target 
the concentrations of where poverty and vulnerability is, and these would predominantly be the slums and informal settlements. So in terms of working with cities, we're working on two phases. The first is the emergency phase, which requires a combination of flattening the curve and caring for the affected. Now, to flatten the curve, you're talking about, for instance, the enforcement of confinement, social distancing, these types of policies, all the regulations that deal with closure of private facilities, public facilities, places of gathering. But then you will need also quite a bit of city interventions with liquidity to support a surge that is needed in public health. And then obviously there is all the work that cities would need to do on maintaining essential services, things like waste management, policing, etc. because I mean, a city cannot stop functioning but at the same time, redeploying staff and non-essential services towards the front line. Then the role of cities in terms of addressing affected livelihoods in those places where uh, social distancing is impractical. It's worth noting that at the World Bank, we've developed a methodology, I mean, predictive work to identify the hotspots within cities. So, I mean, cities that are lacking resources in order for them to figure out where to target the resources where they need it the most. We've done uh, work with artificial intelligence and earth observation that basically uh, looks at cities, at population density, at three-dimensional imaging of the built environment, and at the condition of infrastructure, and specifically communal infrastructure, like communal water taps and uh, public toilets, to identify basically the places within a city where social distancing and keeping two meters apart is impractical, and where such communal facilities that are essential would increase the risk of contagion. Now, in terms of early recovery, there's obviously a lot of emphasis that we need to go in terms of economic stimulus and how cities could be helping implement those programs through a focus on availing labor-intensive public works, community block grants, et cetera, that could go to create employment opportunities for the poor and the vulnerable, but also a focus on the small and micro enterprises through the form of grants, microloans, what have you, and continuing also to regulate public spaces and private facilities so that you can ensure that you have operational health and safety and ability to return and to ease that uh, lockdown and confinement policies. Also, it is critical and it's something we're focusing on, how will cities be able to maintain critical delivery of services, especially that post-COVID, we anticipate that there will be, on account of the reduction in economic activities, a drop in tax revenues and in on-source revenues for municipalities. So how can you sustain service delivery in a city and even scale up the interventions needed on a stimulus package when your revenues are dropping 15 to 25%? Same Waba. Next, Sheila Patel of the Society for the Promotion of Area Resource Centres. I want to give a very serious human face to the people who are facing this tragedy. Uh, we talk about one billion people who are slum dwellers. But what this particular COVID crisis has shown, that while we were counting people who live in informal habitats, we hadn't acknowledged or understood the volume of migrants who are single men and women who come into the city to work, who don't have identifications, who don't have any registration for what work they do, and who are today, at least in India, about 15 to 17 lakhs, 117 million people who have been trapped in the place where they work because the public transport has been closed and now gradually different states are trying to help them to come back. So 
whether you are a slum dweller or a pavement dweller or a squatter or a homeless person, and if you are a migrant, you are presently completely excluded from any form of entitlement in the city. The second very important thing is that our municipalities and our representatives in many countries are still conducting evictions. Just imagine what a crisis that is for families that are almost having more people stay with them because they were trapped in the informal settlement. They don't have food enough to eat. Now they have to face evictions. Now, the third thing which I want to bring up, which is to bring in a face to this, is in most of our countries, we have ancient laws about pandemic, which are terrible, which are still being operationalized. The police beat up people who come out to buy vegetables and sell them to their neighborhood. The other thing which is coming to bite everybody is that routine development of the provision of water, sanitation, basic amenities does not exist. In a place like Dharavi, which is presently in the worldview, there are 175 community toilets with inadequate water and safety tanks that are overflowing because everybody is now at home and shitting over there. The city doesn't know what to do with uh, half of its 18 million people living in informality, many of whom have no documentation. And finally, what we want to say is COVID, like nothing else in the last 50 years, has demonstrated that you cannot have different things for different people. You can't have a strategy of confinement and distancing that works for the elite and then expect the poor to just muddle along. Sheila Patel. The next speaker is Henk Ovink, Special Envoy for International Water Affairs in the Netherlands. COVID-19 shows the vulnerability uh, of society at its best. It's like with climate change, these disasters are magnifying glasses. They really unravel how vulnerability works. And while that happens, uh, you also see, if you look closely, the interdependencies. Eh? You see, it's not only about uh, this pandemic, it's about the mix of climate vulnerability, gender inequality, water vulnerability and insecurity, conflicts, urbanization, slums, the GDP gap, uh, etc. So crisis aggregates in places where people become more vulnerable. But the crisis, we focus on the crisis in our response. So the biggest challenge we face in the world is where this aggregation of challenges, where the pandemic is now front and center, only leads to better health systems. And then with the next pandemic, we might be a little bit better prepared, but with gender inequality, uh, slums, conflict, uh, water insecurity, of course, climate hitting us front and center already, be, just became more vulnerable. The second is that uh, we are as strong as the weakest link, as we like to say. And ODA and aid and everything is only connected to GDP around the world. And with uh, an economy that is failing, uh, the disastrous trickle-down effect of this is that where the money should at least be stable uh, and secure, it will actually lack. And it's a double budget cut. ODA is cut because of GDP. And at the same time, we invest a lot in the pandemic response and that means that our normal budget on the 2030 agenda for sustainable development, uh, the investments when they have to go to climate are lacking. And then I think the crisis, uh, while it is devastating and 
too many people are hit hard also should uh, be the opportunity to really look at the interdependencies between health, uh, gender, security, uh, water, climate, urbanization, slums, equity, equality, opportunities, and so forth. We should be ready for this, and especially in cities. Uh, so how to capacitate cities in such a way, how to develop those programs from the ground up, identify first opportunities, perhaps even start small, and based on those interventions, out of a comprehensive assessment, start to build up capacity. Normally what you would do is you, you need time for the assessment, then you build policies and programs, and then you start to invest in projects. With a crisis, you don't have that time, so you turn the cycle around. But the question, especially to the financial sector and the policymakers is, shy away from only responding to this crisis and focusing on health, but look across uh, the full SDG cycle. Last, of course, is how this connection between science and solidarity, which is so true in words, but so hard in practice. We have an urban agenda, we have the SDGs, but what do they now really mean? This is going to be the biggest challenge. Uh, Latin America, Africa, and Asia, and the communities that are really vulnerable, that are only focusing on safe drinking water uh, and better health and food, that future is not on their radar. It is our obligation to continue to have that future on their radar in the solutions we provide them and in the capacity we bring to those communities. That was Henk Ovink. The final panellist is Annie Dasgupta, Global Director of the WRI Ross Centre for Sustainable Cities. One thing we are learning that this, this interconnectedness of lack of resilience between systems, you know, we, we knew this before, but the ferocity with which a health system failure becomes an economic system failure, becomes a physical system failure of public transport, of water, this interconnectedness, I, I, I think all of us would have guessed it, but wouldn't have seen the ferocity with which this happens, actually. The second, what Sheila said about disproportionate, vastly disproportionate impact to the poor. Now, we also thought about this because people wrote about, you know, flooding will happen, poor people live on the coast, they'll get affected. But the impact of this, ultimately, the people who won't have jobs, people who will not get social security are going to be poor. So that the, any crisis, what we're learning, will impact poor disproportionately at a vast, vast scale. And the third thing I want to say, that cities financially is going to suffer. We know this is a city-centric kind of a problem, but yet the people who are in the center of it will financially cripple to do dramatically interesting things. So I do think we are learning something different from the vastness of this crisis that we should pause and learn from. But two things that stands out to me that we have to learn from this and not repeat what we've been doing. We actually have to do things differently, which would be really difficult to do, as Samir would tell you, because of pressure of disbursing vast amount of funds very quickly because these countries are suffering. So what is the sweet spot? What is the thing that we can help to figure out things that are fast disbursing yet are actually able to do things differently? And two things stands out to me. I do think given what's going on, the numbers we're hearing, 10 trillion, 20 trillion, I don't know how many trillion, where will that money come from? Most of the, it seems to me, national government expenditure will be the biggest chunk. So influencing national government, how they spend the money is something that is critical for us to do, meaning spend the money in cities. The initial national government allocation that I've seen so far actually does not have much city allocation. So first step is to make sure the reconstruction funds actually go to cities, which is where it's needed. The second step is once it gets there, 
how do we make sure that investment is the correct kind of investment? I think that is the hardest one because I will shoot myself if I hear shovel ready one more time. What we are learning is we have to take a systems approach of connecting between systems of social system, economic system, health system, and physical system, and not do simple top-down sectoral projects. Not give money to sector X and they go do projects in 100 cities, but actually work with cities to develop what needs to be done. I think Same and Mamuna talked about data could play a very important role here to accelerate things. The other thing is we have to find ways communities can actually have voice to figure out where right investment, more efficient investment. And finally, what hasn't happened before is cities actually should be somehow involved in designing the systems with the national government, which actually hasn't happened historically. And that was Ani Dasgupta. Finally, a few answers from the panel on three themes, scale, data and density. How, if we seriously look at the poor and vulnerable people in the cities, how can we really get to scale? And one quest, a lot of questions are around, have there been some kind of assessment and a kind of an, an, an economic assessment on what is needed to do that? The other part of the question is, how can we ever get that to speed because everybody, the, 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 let's say slum upgrading, the formal settlement upgrading is a very, com very complex process. So these are, this is uh, coming to scale. The second question um, uh, that, that comes uh, clearly to table is uh, around data. That um, cities, how can we convince cities to take much more data-driven decisions? And uh, uh, Maimuna, the executive director of Human Habitat in a former life was, uh, was a mayor uh, using a lot of data to actually take the right decision. So how do we move that forward and what type of data is actually needed to, uh, to do that? Um, and then there's a, there seem to be also a lot of uh, planners um, uh, um, in, in the audience. There's a lot of discussion about density, crowdedness. Um, um, what does UN Habitat means with revisioning or rethinking um, um, morphology? Um, what about compactness? So these three, these three questions I would like to kind of uh, um, um, uh, put forward first. One around scale, the second around data, and the third around kind of the morphology um, of cities and the discussions about density. What, 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 how do we look at that? Um, maybe, I first, um, maybe I first move uh, uh, to, to Maimuna on the, on, the, on the data question. Um, also from your experience as a, as a mayor and um, looking into kind of the relevance of data um, and increased relevance of data now. When, when I was a mayor in a municipal council as a brown prior, I used a lot of data, but it's not uh, uh, easy to convince the decision maker. At that time, the decision maker was the councillors at the municipal level. But I worked together with the communities because with data, you can showcase or prove your impact on the ground and whether this impact it can be positive or negative so that is in order to prove that our investment and our decision making our policies have the impact on the ground they must be using data we would like to see how we can create urban data mapping and knowledge and in order to create this we have to work together with the local government we have to work together with the people we have to work together with the communities I think seeing is believing. You want to say that you have made certain impact, so what is the proof? On the issue of density, there needs to be a distinction between density and crowdedness. Population density, number of people per unit of land area, 
you know, you can have places with, you know, more or less equal population densities, like, I don't know, Manhattan and Mumbai, but then when you compare the built environment of multi-story dwellings versus single-story shacks in Dharavi, I mean, the potential for contagion is very different between those two built environments. There's another blog that we have out there, which looks at the data from Chinese cities, minus the Wuhan cluster. Since these cities have gone through the entire cycle, if you will, of COVID-19, and then you plot population density against the incidence, and you find that there's no clear relationship. It's not that the cities that had a higher population density density ended up having being more effective. In fact, it was the opposite because, again, some of these cities that had the higher population densities and the higher absolute population figures ended up having, you know, larger public facilities in terms of hospitals, being more equipped, more resource, etc. So there's no clear relationship, whereas there is clearly something related to the crowdedness and other metrics such as quality of infrastructure, of services, and obviously the socioeconomic and demographic characteristics of the population. Two words on scale. I think the best way to reach scale is to find, you know, existing and established delivery mechanism to build on them and to identify the best way to reach the population quickly. If you have to start reinventing the wheel and thinking about a delivery system, I mean, it will take quite a bit of time. So one needs to find tried and tested vehicles that could then be scaled up. This touches upon really the critical part. Will we be able as a world to shy away from a response mode? This question of density is exactly that. We see vulnerability exposed in health. Uh, we come up with distancing policies, so all of a sudden we say density is a problem. But that is such a, a narrow, angled focus to the problem uh, that we just forgot that it's across the interdependencies of social, health, uh, uh, environmental, and so forth, uh, where these challenges come from. So if we really move in that direction as a world, we are lost. The complexity also of the COVID-19 crisis is the one we have to embrace to come to better solutions. And that is especially true in cities where it all comes together and it's possible. The second is scale. And I agree, Same, that existing mechanisms are, of course, nice because you have them on the shelf, but they're also scary uh, because they come from the past. They deliver solutions that often make us more vulnerable. Eh? The business case for stupid infrastructure makes it possible that we scale up the wrong stuff instead of the right stuff. So I think existing mechanism, not only from the institutional, but definitely also for the, from the informal. Eh? How can we ensure that our institutional world starts to embrace the informal existing mechanisms that we can more easily bring to scale? How can that money actually be applied to those type of innovative interventions in the city, smaller scale at a large aggregated level that might not have been validated within our financial institutions, but are validated across time in the communities that face these risks. So scaling up proven uh, mechanisms only helps if they come from the ground. Second, I do think with scale, innovation helps. If we have the opportunity to make room to really drive innovative approaches across all the SDGs, really look at also climate, uh, urbanization, inequality, and so forth, bring it together, then we can find opportunities to scale these up and help uh, recover better from this uh, COVID crisis. Otherwise, I'm, I'm really fearful that uh, we continue to, uh, to respond to a health situation, 
come up with solutions that make these cities less livable and without the quality that needs uh, and spend the money on the stupid infrastructure uh, that has been making us more vulnerable than less, where actually this crisis also came from. Dense, crowded, informal settlements are there because nobody wants to face the political and the land-related implications of making this transformation. This is a deeply political process. So let's not pretend that you can throw some technical things at it and it will be solved. This is a hundred-year-old colonial crisis in all the southern countries. And those of us who have not sought it have had elites that have bought into this process and legitimated the right of the few and not the right of the most to come to work in the city. So that's a political situation. All poor people take enormous risks to test out things for their survival basis. They know how to take those risks. Talk to them, talk to their networks and create through COVID a legacy of collaborative practices on the ground. You cannot do this at the same scale in rural areas because they are dispersed. But in cities where you have large numbers in close proximity, this is very possible. And that was Sheila Patel ending this shortened recording from our WRI webinar on building back better in the world's cities following the COVID-19 crisis. As ever, you can find the full audio-visual recording from this, including slides on the events page at wri.org. Or on our dedicated COVID-19 pages, you'll also find other Build Back Better webinars that we've already held and one still to come. You can, of course, catch them all on the WRI podcast, available wherever you download yours. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening.